I'm Will Howell. I'm Viola Giuda. I'm Anthony Fowler, and this is Not Another Politics Podcast. Anthony, so, you're coming in uh, from Spain. I am. I am. Uh, it's very exciting here. Things are really good. I'm teaching a class here, and we're talking about independence movement. So it's it's really fun. It's the middle of the night for you. This is this is uh, yeah this is uh, this is late at night for me. But uh, but I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to continue to do the show. The show is very important. It must go on. <laughs> that's that's an appropriate time to do the show in Barcelona because uh, it's a little bit too early to go to party. I think you still have like three hours before you can go out. So yes, uh, killing the time. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, we're not talking about anything directly related to Barcelona. But we are talking about we are talking about a big issue. We see in Washington all of these paid lobbyists going around making lots of money, and we see them coming from all different sectors. And it certainly seems like policy might be getting distorted away from what the median voter wants, and into in the interests of whoever has the pockets to deep pockets to pay for lobbyists. Do we have anything interesting to say from political scientists about um, how lobbying actually works and what effects it might have, and who's actually doing it, and how worried we should be? What do you, what do you think about all that, Viola? Yeah, I find this topic to be very fascinating. I come from a country where lobbying was not really a big thing, so I was very surprised how prominent role it plays in the US. I'm even more surprised to learn something from the paper we are going to discuss today, which is that it's not only that private sector lobbies and private interest groups lobby, but city governments also lobby in order to lobby the state legislature and the federal government or policies that should benefit those cities. Well, you talk to someone who actually is an expert on city lobbying. Uh, tell us more about this. I did. I talked to Julia Payson, who is a professor at NYU in their politics department. And she has a paper called The Partisan Logic of City Mobilization, Evidence from State Lobbying Disclosures that came out in the 2020 uh, APSR. It's the basis of a 2021 book that just came out that she produced uh, called When Cities Lobby by Oxford University Press. And she, in this work, investigates the conditions under which, as you point out, cities lobby state legislatures. And it isn't just that they behave like lobbyists, it's that the conditions under which they actually hire professional lobbyists. So this isn't a story about you know general or generic influence being wielded by one political actor over another. This is clearly about straightforward lobbying, but by a set of actors who I think we un are kind of unconventional when we think about the, the standard case of lobbying, because it's, you know, one government lobbying another. In this paper, she investigates the particular conditions under which that's likely to happen. And she draws our attention to the relevance of what she's going to call a partisan mismatch between the partisanship of the residents of a city, whether or not they lean Democrat or lean Republican, and the partisanship of the person who represents them in the state legislature. Julie, it's such a pleasure to have you on. <laughs> We're gonna talk about your 2020 APSR paper, The Partisan Logic of City Mobilization, which also served as the basis of a book that Oxford University Press put out. And it's on a really interesting and important topic about how cities lobby state governments. And I think we're accustomed to thinking about industries acting as lobbyists, organized groups of citizens like gun owners lobbying, even foreign governments lobbying. But you're telling the story of governments within our system of federated powers lobbying other governments. Yes, so there are a few different ways that cities and all local governments can lobby. Uh, and the type of lobbying that I'm interested in is this reliance on professional paid 
lobbyists. And this can either be via private outside lobbying firms or some cities also employ intergovernmental relations staff directly within the city, still a professional lobbyist who registers as such. Much of the literature on lobbying and interest group mobilization doesn't recognize this fact that you've just pointed us to. But to the extent that it, it tells a story about what lobbying looks for, it's usually in the service of access. It's about opening up channels of communication that aren't otherwise available to uh, an industry. But that's not the story that's happening here. City government officials already have a measure of access. They're looking for something else. What's that? What is that something else that they're trying to accomplish? Yeah, I, I think you're right. The access is built in. Any state legislator will take a call from a mayor in their district. But there's variation in how well uh, representatives are able to uh, fulfill this task. Uh, some legislators inherently might pay more attention or less attention to a particular city within their district based on a variety of factors. You know, is it a, a big economically important city? Is it a city that provided a lot of votes for this person? Are the residents of this city ideologically aligned with the state legislator? And so the theory in this paper is really that cities can rely on this other channel, these private lobbyists, when these formal built-in channels of representation break down. And there's a bunch of different ways that this can happen, but one of the most common ways is simply when there's a partisan or ideological mismatch between a legislator in one level of government and the preferences of voters back home. The point then of the lobbying is to correct for the mismatch. That is, to the extent that communication breaks down, that you employ, you the city, employ a professional lobbyist in order to improve that quality of that communication. Right. And there's a few different channels through which this can happen. One is simply the act of hiring the lobbyist can serve as a signal to your state official that this issue is really important. And then also because lobbyists can be really effective at transmitting information that will help state legislators figure out what the best policy is for their districts and for the cities in their districts. And there's a lot of issues at the state and local level that aren't these hyper polarized issues that a legislator is never going to move on. And in fact, this is something you hear all the time. Cities say that they're not lobbying you know, on abortion or you know, Second Amendment gun control laws. They're lobbying on sort of technical funding measures where there really is some uncertainty about what the best policy might be. And there really is some room for maneuvering. And there's the famous quote, there's no you know, Republican or Democratic way to fix a pothole. And a lot of uh, these types of issues are precisely what cities are lobbying on even if they're unable to sort of persuade legislators, there's often sort of side benefits to having lobbyists in your corner. They can help you identify pots of money and grants. So even if they can't persuade the legislator to get on your side, they can also find other channels to get around and correct for these sort of representational imbalances is what I'm calling them. Tell us a little bit about the data that you collect to investigate this, right? So it's about in the aftermath of a representational breakdown, we're going to see an upsurge in city uh, spending on lobbying. So how do you do it? What data do you collect? The first task was actually getting data on just all the cities lobbying across all 50 states over time. 
And the reason that I focused on state lobbying rather than federal lobbying is just because this is where most of the action happens. Cities get upward of 30% of their revenue and budget on average from the state government, but only somewhere in the 3 to 5% range from the federal government. So the incentives to lobby the state uh, level are sort of much stronger. And once I sort of had the universe of lobbying disclosures over the period that I focus on, which in the paper is from 2006 to 2014, I was able to identify city lobbyists by matching the names of lobbying clients with the universe of cities articulated by the census of local governments, which uh, the Census Bureau conducts every five years. Uh, and then I can merge this data on city lobbying with all sorts of city characteristics. Of course, things like population and the local economy matter. I have all sorts of demographic and financial data from various sources. But in order to sort of test the theory that representational dynamics matter, I need some sort of estimate of local preferences as well as estimates of the preferences of state officials. One sort of simple way to get at this is just uh, vote share in presidential elections. So what proportion of city residents are voting for the Republican candidate versus the Democratic candidate. But thanks to the efforts of Tasanovich and Warshaw, we do have good estimates of city presidential vote share in 2008. And so we can see which cities leaned more Republican, which cities lean more Democrat. Um, and I'm defining a city as being Democratic if it falls in the upper third of vote share for the Democratic candidate. Um, so we sort of have this rough measure of city partisan leanings, which we assume in this polarized era correlates with liberal conservative preferences. It can then look at the party of the state legislator or state delegation elected to represent that city. So if you are a city whose residents tend to vote Democratic, do you in fact have a Democratic representative in the state house? And many of these cities actually have uh, delegations of more than one state legislator. And in fact, this is uh, where a lot of the variation comes from. If you're a larger city and you have several representatives, are they all uniformly Democrats or you know, might a Republican be elected, particularly in a district that's split between a more rural or suburban area and a little uh, periphery part of a city. So I'm basically defining a partisan mismatch as existing when a Democratic city is represented by less than 50% Democrats in the delegation. So of course, this is very easy if you have only one elected legislator and that person is not of the same party, obviously a mismatch exists. If you have a delegation with more than one representative, I'm saying that the mismatch exists uh, if less than 50% are from your co-partisan party. And then another important point is I'm measuring city partisanship based on resident vote share. And one reason to do this is because three quarters of cities in the US have nonpartisan elections where it's actually quite difficult to ascertain the partisan leanings of the city elected officials. We can often assume that these city officials will reflect roughly the partisan leadings of the city. I provide some sort of qualitative evidence suggesting that this is the case. And interestingly, for a small subset of cities where I do have mayoral partisanship, adding that mayoral partisanship doesn't explain a whole bunch of additional variants uh, beyond this proxy for, for city preferences that I have using just overall vote share within the city. And I think, you know, this vote share within a city, it's capturing 
really just the, the broad policy preferences and challenges facing a geographic area. Um, and when state legislators are looking at a city, what they're concerned about is the constellation of voters and what the voters need to. So I think it, it's actually not a bad way to, to conceptualize this relationship. And I think you point out in the paper too, is that the lobbying that you actually observe is focusing on, disproportionately on the, the elected official who's representing the city in the state legislature. They're not roaming broadly. They're actually focusing on precisely the nature of the misrepresentation um, that you're modeling in the paper. That's right. There are a few states, including the great state of Missouri, that actually collect data on individual meetings between lobbyists and state legislatures. And when I look specifically at who are these lobbyists meeting with who are representing cities, it's precisely uh, with the district representatives. So there is, you know, uh, some preliminary evidence that the the story that I'm telling about this dyadic representation within districts, that that is the heart of, of the matter. Good. So there are a couple of things that I think are worth understanding scoring here. One is that the mismatch that's of interest to you is a mismatch between the representation of a city in a state legislature and the voters in that city. It's not a mismatch between the voters in the city and the state legislature as a whole. You investigate that, but it's really, I mean, the story has to do with who's representing the city. And uh, if if the person who's representing the city is of a partisanship that doesn't align especially well with the partisanship of the city, then you say, now we have the mismatch. So what do you find? So I find (laughs) that when an election leads to a mismatch between a state legislative delegation and a city in that district, the city increases its lobbying efforts by around five to seven uh, percentage points. So from sort of a baseline average probability of lobbying of around 45%, if cities are increasing the probability of hiring lobbyists by around five to seven percentage points, you know, that's a pretty substantial increase, especially given that most of the dynamics that dictate mobilization are things like population growth, local average income. I mean, the effect of having an election leading to a mismatched state legislature, it's almost as big as an effect as if the city were to double in population size. Uh, And this is using a design where I'm comparing the same cities over time as some cities experience mismatches while others don't. So the, the variation is coming over time. In another analysis later in the paper, I also compare cities that narrowly elect a mismatched delegation as opposed to narrowly elect uh, an aligned member in the state legislature. And I find even larger effects here. So if you're a city, you have sort of a very close election where you very narrowly elect a Democrat or a Republican, the cities that are electing the non-copartisan, they increase their lobbying rates by something like 20 uh, percentage points. So here, sort of the variation is across cities and using narrow elections as uh, the source of of inference and variation. uh, And the effects are even larger when I do this uh, research design. So the first research design is looking at variation within cities over time, while also netting out common shocks experienced either nationwide or within cities. And in the second set of analyses, you're looking at these, in a regression discontinuity design, these these cities that barely elected somebody who was aligned or misaligned to see what the differences are. When I was reading the paper, I was thinking about, well, the reason why you might actually privilege the latter analysis is that it's not random when cities elect people that don't 
adequately represent them in terms of partisanship. What you might say is, is that that happens in those instances where something has gone wrong. Some group has really gotten mobilized and said, you know, these Democrats are not doing a good job of representing our interests. They're not performing well. Let's send up somebody different. And in the first set of analyses, you can't adequately account for that as well. And whereas in the second analysis, because it's sort of random, these very close races, who actually won, you more credibly attend to that kind of concern. I think your intuition is exactly right. You know, these elections of non-copartisan state legislators, they are not random. They happen for a reason. And in fact, when I look at city lobbying before the election, I actually find that the places that are going to go on to become mismatched are already starting to hire lobbyists at a slightly higher rate, uh, which sort of implies that there could be some anticipation of the challenges to come, or it could sort of imply that these additional challenges, whatever they might be, that are leading to this election of the mismatched legislator. Maybe that's the thing that's causing cities to lobby. And I sort of have two responses to that. One is, as you say, the regression discontinuity design helps me to rule out that story and more locally isolate the effect of just the election leading to the change in partisanship. But also, if you're thinking more broadly about what are representational challenges that cities might face in trying to get their fair share from their state legislators, the idea that if a state legislator is so bad that uh, that person's going to get booted out of office and replaced with a non-copartisan, maybe these challenges are already sort of present. So just as a descriptive matter, not making a strong causal claim, but just sort of trying to understand the conditions under which lobbying happens, I think it's still consistent with this idea that something uh, is going on where uh, the relationship between a legislator and a district is tenuous for whatever reason. So I, I think both things are sort of true. I, I think you could make this descriptive argument about broader representational challenges or you could lean into the RDD and say there probably is something specifically about partisan mismatch that, that really is sort of causally driving this increase. Yeah, I guess I'm inclined to lean into the RDD analysis because what I imagine is that either there's been a failure of performance that is doing all the work or just as probably what is happening is that when a Republican in is running in a largely Democratic city, the Republican is calling out all the failures of the Democratic mayor. The work then that the lobbyist does is kind of a relationship repair. It's that you don't have to talk directly to the mayor who you were arguing against and who is now sitting in office and is really upset with you for having, you know, besmirched her integrity. It opens up a new channel of uh, of communication where you can actually attend to the work of the, the less ideological policymaking that's of interest to you in the paper, which is about building bridges and repairing roads. I think this is exactly right. And the dynamic you highlight is the most common one, where sort of larger, bluer cities uh, often sometimes experience an influx of Republicans to the state house. This happens often in the South, the Midwest. When this happens, one of the ways that these Democratic cities can try to respond is by hiring lobbyists to try to, as you say, repair that relationship, bridge that gap. Um, I have an amazing conversation with one of the lobbyists for the city of Milwaukee after uh, Milwaukee's legislative district went red. And this person was actually an on-staff lobbyist for the city, but she said she then hired additional outside lobbying firms when the Republicans were elected uh, that had ties to those Republican legislators to be able to just sort of understand their political motivations, be able to speak more effectively to them, pitch the city's arguments in a more tailored way. Uh, so that perfectly illustrates the sort of uh, logic that I'm seeing and, and that you were, were hinting at as well. 
well. And you look at whether or not the effects vary upon the nature of the partisan misalignment. It's not driven by just Republicans being sent up from blue cities or Democrats being set up from red cities. No, it's as you see the effect on, on both sides of the ledger. So I was pretty uh, surprised at first when I saw this that, yes, there's a pretty um, symmetrical increase in the rate of lobbying, whether you're a Republican city or a Democratic city experiencing the mismatch. In the book, I sort of decompose this a bit more, and I find that actually conservative Republicans are, these, these folks are the ones who sort of don't want blue cities enacting an agenda that goes against the state legislature. These are where the preemption battles are, are playing out. So if I control for both party and ideology in the same regression, which I don't do in the paper, but in subsequent analyses in the book, I take a look at, I actually do find that it is Democratic cities elected by conservative Republican uh, state legislatures. Uh, we do see a larger increase in mobilization rates. Why is that? Is what's happening when you have extreme conservatives representing blue cities that they're playing a slightly different game? Yes, this is a great question. Precisely as you said, that no matter what the district, there's still this dyadic relationship where a state legislator wants to get reelected, needs to provide a base level uh, of funding and sort of policy work that they can can stand on. And in, in both cases, you know, Republicans and, and Democrats both like getting pork for their districts, both like claiming credit for good policy. So I think the difference with this um, particular breed of conservative Republican that's emerging in some state legislatures is that these folks often sort of pose an existential threat to the ability of cities to do anything locally. So when you look at state legislatures that are trying to just completely ban cities from being able to raise their own minimum wages or pass anti-discrimination measures or pass climate change measures, uh, Republicans in some state legislatures just want to limit completely the ability of cities to do really anything. Um, and it's sort of this breed of folks who it's a whole different ballgame. It's not just about getting goodies for your district and trying to get reelected. It's a whole philosophy of state versus city that, that goes way beyond your district. And, and it's those places, I think, that are driving uh, the increase in lobbying efforts by a, a certain type of blue city. Julia, it's great. Thank you for inviting me to talk about my research. Hey, it's a it's a terrific paper on an, on an important topic. So Viola, I assume I assume you're a taxpayer. You don't have to say if you if you do or don't pay your taxes, but I assume you're a taxpayer. And and you know you you already pay taxes for your for your city government. You pay taxes for your state government. But did you also know that you pay for your city government to hire lobbyists to go lobby the state government? Like, does that does that bother you as a taxpayer that this is going on, that we're just paying for all this stuff that, that we have no idea if it's actually doing us any good? That's a very good question. Doesn't bother me. I don't know. I think whether it bothers me or not depends on what lobbying does. Is this something that works in my interest as a person living in Chicago? Or, or is this just a waste of money from my perspective and potentially disrupting the outcomes that, that are being delivered to me. So when I think about lobbying in general, outside of the city uh, setting, I think about two major explanations for why lobbying might be happening. One is it's some sort of qui pro quo story. Yes, like you, you are an insurance company or insurance industry and you want to get 
legislation that's favoring your industry. So you send out lobbies and they solicit policy promises in exchange for some donations to parks or promises for future career uh, opportunities for the legislators and so on. So that story definitely is a story where, you know, I feel uneasy. Sure, if I was part of the insurance industry, but I would probably be happy this happening. But as an observer of the political life, that makes me a little bit uneasy. But then there's this another, this other story. It's all about information. My Insurance industry knows a lot about insurance and I know what are the best policies for everyone. And I'm providing this information via the, you know, vehicle of the lobbyist to my representative. And as a result, they are making better policies. They are taking better actions. So, so now I think, you know, I want to think about the setting that Julia studies, which is the cities and how likely it is that we are in one situation versus the other. And I think it's a little bit hard for me to think that we are in this first story where it's some sort of quick pro quo because I don't know what city government can actually offer to the state legislatures that will be this kind of, you know, part of this quick pro quo. And at the same time, I'm reassured by one of her findings, which is that what's really important is the misalignment between the voters' ideology and the state's representative. So it's not that the mayor is lobbying the state representative because somehow they are misaligned and, and she wants to convince the state representatives to change her mind, but somehow the lobbying is triggered when the, presumably the interests of the citizens are not represented well. I find, I mean, I find that to be a mostly compelling analysis. I mean, I would add a few more possibilities. So I think maybe there's lots of agency problems. Nobody really knows what the effect of lobbying is, but you want to be able to advertise to somebody that you tried something or you did something, you know? So you're the head of government relations at the insurance industry and you're not going to go to your CEO and say, it turns out there's nothing we can do. You're going to say, oh, I did all this stuff. I hired these lobbyists and I, I made donations to these campaigns and so forth. And look at all the great stuff that we're doing. Just like if you were in the marketing office, you wouldn't go back and say, it turns out I can't run an ad that's going to help you sell the cereal, you're going to run an ad and you will never know how many boxes of cereal that ad sold. Maybe mayors are thinking about how is this going to look publicly? And I can, you know, do I want to be, be able to advertise, hey, I tried something versus I didn't try something. I mean, that's at least a possibility. In which case, that last possibility is really good for the lobbyists, but not so good for anybody else. But well, it also, though, runs up against the question that you led with, Anthony, which is, you know, is this good for us? There's a kind seeing mayors hire lobbyists may not be a signal that a mayor wants to send to her 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 constituents that look I'm doing everything I can on behalf of you I'm instead I'm I'm hiring these you know mercenaries <laughs> to act on your behalf and it, it suggests it's all a racket right it's like nothing actually is coming of it it's just about demonstrating that you've you've tried and the other piece of it which is interesting is that a number of these stories certainly the legislative subsidy story is one about you pairing up with um, or targeting people who share your ideological outlook or share your, your your partisanship. But for her, she's uncovering these mismatches as the moments under which lobbying is going to increase, which also cuts against um, at least part of the standard, one of the standard stories that's told about um, lobbying from the private sector. So here's my interpretation. Here's my, how I uh, reconcile all these findings. So, so I think I believe in this informational story. And I believe that that would mean that you lobby, even if the state representative is from the same party and maybe even more, because then it's easier for you to provide information. It's more useful to provide information because you know that the representative is likely to act on the information that you provide. And uh, so why does she see that actually there is some 
large but not overwhelmingly large increase in lobbying when actually the representative becomes misaligned? Well, perhaps it's just about translation. It's, it's sort of, you know, when I'm represented by someone who already thinks the way I think, they're more likely to have this information. It's very easy for me to pick up the phone and say, hey, here's the piece of information you might need. But if I'm represented by someone who has a different ideological uh, lenses via which they see the world, who have different pieces of information because they are already misaligned, so probably they have been exposed to, to let's say, different kind of thinking, I need a skilled translator who will take the information I have, repackage it, spend a lot of time sort of trying to persuade this other person. So, so, so to me, these are these two stories. Like I'm trying to provide information, and when I get someone who is different than me, I need someone skillful at, at providing this information. I don't but know. it's about your story is about that. translation. It's not about the provision of new information per se. It's that you know, the lobbyist is your Google translator, um, it, right, it from is. one so, language so, to another. So notice that in her data set, already the baseline lobbying is 45%. So no matter what, like we already have a lot of lobbying, whether we are aligned or misaligned. Given the discussion that we just had, it seems that the information story fits it. And then how do we solve the puzzle that lobbying increases when we become misaligned? I think it's because now providing information becomes harder. Like we, you and I don't speak the same language. It's just harder for me to provide this information. So I have to have an expert who will facilitate uh, this provision of information. And, and I think that might explain this 10 percentage points increase in hiring a professional. I mean, I would love to know more about what these lobbyists are actually doing with their time, like what their, you know, what their tasks really look like. But is it possible that part of the story is actually the information in reverse? The, the mayor would kind of like to have a spy in the state legislature? Yes. And the mayor would I like, like to anticipate, like, what the, what is the state legislature doing? And there's no official registration form for spies in the state legislature, so you call them lobbyists. But you essentially <laughs> have this person go regularly meet with the state legislators and ask them, like, what are you doing? What are you thinking about? You know, what what kinds of changes should we be anticipating? I mean, and and maybe and maybe that explains why you need more. You need a spy when it's the wrong party. When it's the when it's the party that you know, you can just pick up the phone and ask yourself. But maybe maybe you feel like you need the lobbyist to help you when it's when it's when it's someone who's not an ally. I like the story. I would be shocked if at least this is not part of the story, that the reason why I want to have the, like, I can't be all the time following what my state legislature is doing, what they are thinking, what kind of bills they are working on. I'm just too busy as a mayor. So I need someone full time who's going to be walking around there and, and, and asking questions and alerting me, hey, now you have to pick up the phone and call your representative because she's thinking of doing something that that's going to be against our interests. So, I think I think you're on something. But it's not the mayor that's going to be hanging out with the, regardless of whether or not it's the same party or not, is going to be collecting this information. The mayor has staff uh, and people at the state legislature who could provide additional information about what's going on there. Can I try a slight, I mean, a slightly different story, which is, I think it's in the spirit of what you guys are laying out, but it, it, it points to something about the nature of the campaigns themselves which is like, under what conditions are you going to see a Republican win a race to represent a city that's decidedly Democrat? Like, what is that race going to look like? I mean, if that were to happen here in Chicago, what is it? What is the Republican going to say? The Republican is going to say, you, dear Chicagoans, have been mistreated by your elected officials. They have run us into the ground, all kinds of corruption and debt and mismanagement. And, and that goes all the way across the board, from the mayor to the state legislature. And I, as an outsider, am going to step in and provide much needed representation of your core interests. And in the course of such a campaign, 
I can well imagine, relationships between a mayor and the state legislature are ruptured. They're broken. And um, it's not that they can't communicate with one another. People communicate across party lines all the time. It's not that they can't hear what their each other's priorities are. It's that there's a breakdown in the channels of communication by virtue of what happened in the context of the campaign and that the lobbyists provide a corrective to that so that information can flow in both directions, as the two of you point out. Let me throw out a... I think it's a different story. You can tell me if it's related to your story or not. But here, here's a story that's possible that's, that's, that's inspired by your line of thinking, which is when would a Republican state legislator get elected in Chicago? It's either their opponent is some incredibly corrupt Democrat or they themselves are a really fantastic Republican. Like they're an especially moderate, high quality, super qualified Republican um, that is just really appealing for non, maybe non-policy, non-ideological, non-partisan reasons. That raises the possibility in my mind that what Julie is picking up in her study is not something to do with party per se, but it could be something like the competence of the state legislator. It should be the case if we think about electoral selection, it should be that the Republican state legislators representing democratic places are on average higher, more competent, higher quality on other nonpartisan dimensions than the Democrats and vice versa. In a Republican place, the Democrats are higher quality. And so it could be that when you have an especially competent state legislator in your area, that's when you want to lobby them because maybe they could actually get something done. Is that they're, they're actually willing to take the meeting and work on something, whereas the, the, the lazy, incompetent, corrupt politician is just, you know, uh, is not doing anything. But if they're is really that, high quality, you don't, the, the problems of translation are not going to be as acute. Right? Why do you need to? I, like, I don't get that. Why, why would you need to hire the lobbyist on top of? Like, you'd see that as a way to make up for the failings of, or I mean, the breakdowns of. Well, okay. Yeah. I mean, you, you've just illustrated the fact that there's no clear theoretical predictions. Like, is lobbying a complement or a substitute to quality? Is lobbying a complement or a substitute to partisan agreement? We have no idea. You could tell a story any of the directions. But this is why I like my story, which is that. <laughs> when, when there's an election. I think Anthony just said any story with uh, God. No, so. but I like my story. <laughs> I like my story. Now I'm going to stick to this. I do. Because it's, that, that, is, that leads to a clear prediction, which is that when I'm running for the state legislature as a Republican here in Chicago, and I've slammed the mayor left and right as a way to point to all the failures and why you should, you know, don't vote Democrat again, vote Republican. That's going to have corrosive effects on my relationship with the mayor. And the lobbyists are going to offer... Uh, open up new lines of communication between us because I, yes, I'll take the call, but I'm not going to take her seriously. And she's going to be less likely to call me because she's pissed off at me. And so in this way, I don't know. I think there's a clear, there's a clear prediction. Have you ever wondered what goes on inside a black hole or why time only moves in one direction or what is really so weird about quantum mechanics? Then you should listen to why this universe on this podcast, you'll hear about the strangest and most interesting ideas in physics, broken down by physicists Dan Hooper and Shalma Wegsman. If you want to learn about our universe from the quantum to the cosmic, you won't want to miss Why This Universe, part of the University of Chicago Podcast Network. So let me bring a few pieces of sort of information that comes out of Julia's paper. So she looked at not only the partisan misalignment, but she also looked at the misalignment of ideologies. So this is a more continuous measure. And she seems to have this increasing relationship that the more misaligned we are, the more likely we are to hire the lobbies, which would, I don't know, how does this uh, fit your stories? I think my story does actually fit the data a little bit better than Will's story in that 
her evidence is about the partisan mismatch between the legislator and the voters and not about the mismatch between the mayor and the legislator. And yes. my story is about that. My story is you'd get this electoral selection story. What really mm. matters is the partisan leaning of the voters. So you get the, the high quality Republicans winning in Democrat, Democratic places. Now, it doesn't matter what the party of the mayor is. And you get the high quality Democrats winning in the Republican places. I'm not saying that I, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to like die on this hill, but, um, and also, I mean, if I just think like, you know, I mean, of course, as we said, theoretically, you could tell any story you wanted to, but it does make some sense that imagine that you did call the state legislator and they just seemed completely inept and lazy. And you would probably stop. You'd say, I'm going to, who cares? Why, why do I need to call? But if in fact, they're actually like a really competent, hardworking legislator, you might want to lobby them a lot because they're actually doing a lot of stuff. They're sponsoring legislation and they're, you know, they're actually like they're holding hearings and they're doing constituency service. And so that's the kind of person that you would like to. So it does kind of make sense to me that there should be some complementarity between lobbying and just the, the capacity well, and the, the ability of the legislator. If I've elected somebody who's misaligned, but is of higher quality and therefore might actually be able to do something, that is a story for us certainly to engage that person more to a greater extent. Is that a reason to engage them in particular through the hiring of outside lobbyists? We, I mean, we don't know. Maybe these things are all, they all go together. I mean, I mean, you could tell a story because the mayor doesn't have time. The mayor's busy. They've got lots of things to do. But they say, oh, look, there's, we can partner with the state legislature. Legislator, we can actually write lots of valuable bills. I don't have time to do all of that, but I'll hire lobbyists who will help me do that. The reason why I like your story is because it solves one puzzle that I had, which is what seems to matter is the misalignment between the ideology of the voters and the state representative. But when Julia looks at only the misalignment between the mayor and the state representative, she does not find statistically significant effects. She still finds the effect that goes in the same direction, but it's not uh, distinguishable from zero. So, so this was very puzzling for me because it's the mayor who makes decisions about hiring a lobbyist. And your story seems to provide a channel that would explain that, that it's, it goes through the quality of the, of the representative. And, and, and that quality depends not on what kind of mayor we have in office, but on what kind of ideology the voters have. Does this help? Were you guys puzzled by this finding? And does this help you think about it? Or do you have some alternative explanations? Yes, I, I was I was puzzled by that finding as well. It just it seemed like the sixth thing you would have thought to test for. You know what I mean? It just seemed like why would the the interaction between the voters' partisanship and the and the, like why is that the thing that matters as opposed to all the other things? I was a little bit puzzled by that. So I do like that story that we just came up with that at least helps <laughs> helps to explain it. But um, I just come up with stories like this <laughs> while drinking sangria in Barcelona. <laughs> it does make me just a little bit skeptical of, 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 of all of the results in the sense that, you know, you could have told the story lots of different ways. There were lots of things you could have tested for. The results are really interesting, but it could be a false positive or it could be an overestimate. It could be, you know, if you test for six things, you were bound to, you were bound to get something by chance. And the results aren't that strong to begin with. A lot of her results aren't super, you know, very significant to begin with and so forth. So that line of thinking does just make me a little bit skeptical that maybe um, maybe we're overstating things, but but I'm I'm, I'm satisfied. I'm, I'm happy that we came up with a more satisfying explanation for what might be going on. If that is the right if that is the right story, the effects attenuate when you look at the difference between the mayor versus the legislative representative, as opposed to the constituents and the legislative representatives. They attenuate. They're no longer significant, but they're not significantly different from one another. I don't know how much to like lean into that distinction. 
And I suspect in the vast majority of cases where there is a mismatch between constituents um, and state legislative representative, there isn't a mismatch with the mayor. But if you just looked at the, if you, if you, if you just ignore the voters and only look at the mismatch between the mayor and the state representative, the effect is much smaller and not significant. And yeah, I understand what you are saying, but if anything, I would have expected the change to go in the other direction. Uh, once you put both of them, given that there's this correlation, well, you know, who knows what happens. But in those two separate regressions, I was puzzled by why we pick up the effect only when we look at the ideology of the voters. And uh, yeah, it could be what Anthony is saying. Well, it's just uh, a fluke, but uh, there could be a story behind this. And I think that's the beauty of, of research that uh, she brings this to us. And she says, well, you know, let's think about it. So what do we make? What do we make of all of this? Is it time for our bottom lines? Will I mean, what have you what have you really learned from this paper that you didn't know before about lobbying? So I guess there were a couple of things that I found I really liked about the paper. The first is is the top line fact, which is that cities are actually doing all this lobbying. I didn't appreciate how often it was happening. There are things that we struggled for explanations on over the course of our conversation, but that I think are puzzles that she may not resolve, but that she productively casts our attention towards. That is, that the lobbying is directed towards your own city's legislator, not the legislative body as a whole or members of other districts. And and thinking about these partisan mismatches and how lobbying might serve as a substitute for other kinds of communication is, I don't know, I just, I find it really interesting. The, the findings aren't huge. They're not massive effects, but she looks at them using, all, you know, these are, she's not looking at a handful of cities. She's looking at uh, cities all across the country over, over roughly a decade of time. This isn't the final word, but I guess my bottom line is I found this, this paper really stimulating. Yeah, I agree with, I agree with most of that. I think, I mean, I also didn't appreciate the scale of this. I didn't appreciate how common this was. I think the fact that these city governments, I mean, maybe on the one hand, um, this isn't the most nefarious form of lobbying. This isn't like, uh, you know, the gun company hiring the lobby. You know, it's not those kind of evil. It's just like, you know, the mayor's trying to do their best and they're hiring a lobbyist to try to influence what the state's doing. And and maybe it, maybe it gives us a slightly different picture of lobbying that we didn't have before. And it does probably tell us something about when and why people engage in lobbying and when we, we might expect it to be more effective versus less effective, less effective. So I find all of that to be interesting. I also am somewhat worried about the like the agency problem. Like as a taxpayer, are we just wasting all of this money? Like, is this just a huge racket that this lobbying industry has? They are convinced all of us and all the elected officials that they should be spending all this money on lobbying when maybe it doesn't actually do a whole lot. There's a little bit of worry there, but but overall I find the results to be to be really interesting. So the reason why I like this paper is uh, is sort of related to what you just said, Anthony. I think lobbying in itself is very interesting. And I think by looking at lobbying in this particular situation, uh, she really can shed a lot of light. And, and, you know, we were struggling with interpreting exactly what her conclusions uh, tell us, but at least she's really providing new information on, on just the nature of lobbying, because by focusing on the cities, she's uh, sort of ruling out certain explanations that we could be talking about when we talk about lobbying, lobbying in general. So, for example, this, um, this sort of agency problems, I think, are smaller within cities because of, of what uh, Will said during the podcast. And also, you know, the quid pro quo stories are also less likely to be an explanation. So I really liked her focus on this very particular setting because that can teach us something about the bigger setting. And I'm really looking forward to reading the book. And, and I think 
it was just an amazing data gathering exercise. So I'm, I'm very impressed. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Not Another Politics Podcast. Our show is a podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy and is produced by Matt Hodup. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.